Let's go ahead and open in prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you for this day and to be in your house at this place. And Lord, we just ask your blessing on Dave and we pray for this service. Lord, we pray that we would walk out with something new for our lives as well as something for Samuel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Yeah, I just want to point out, this is, uh, on Mother's Day, I, I gave a short tribute to my mom and told you that uh, on her 75th, or was 76, I can't remember, 75th or 76th birthday, I called her up to wish her happy birthday, and, uh, and I could hear my dad in the background yelling as they were hiking through the Ozarks, uh, I think you're in the Ozarks. Uh, if you get a little bit closer to the edge of the cliff, you'll get better reception. <laughs> so, just wanted you to, you know, have the full context of our family. <laughs> so I thought, uh, rather than starting in a psalm this morning, which we usually do, I take you to Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50. A little bit past the middle of your Bible. And uh, does somebody have a, a New American Standard version? I do. Would I saw two people nodding. Uh, would one of the two of you like to read this when you get access to it? We'll read the whole of 11 verses here. Isaiah 50, yep. Thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent you another way? Who condemns me? 
Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with firebrands, walk in the light of your fire, and among the brands you have set ablaze. This you will have in my hand, and you will lie down in torment. So some of you are probably wondering, why did he pick Isaiah chapter 50? <laughs> when you heard that, how did that make you feel? What were you thinking as she read through that? Anybody brave enough to offer an opinion? Observation? Well, it definitely quieted the room. <laughs> it's a chapter by a very patient person. Chapter by a very patient person. That person being? Pardon? God. God. Mm -hmm. um, when I had my, uh, my dad read that this morning in the car on the way over here, I asked him the same question. How, do you, how did you feel about that? He said, uh, what, it, you said it, uh, I can't remember exactly how you said it. How did you say it? Well, I did say at the end, you know, that he, he could get angry and get upset with you. And yeah. This one, he was getting upset with you. This, this seems kind of harsh. And, uh, and so you read it and you think, I mean, it starts out saying, where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? And it's like, wow, this is a great introduction. <laughs> or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? Right? Behold, you were sold for your iniquities, for your sins, and for your transgressions, and your mother was sent away. So... Uh, it's very easy to get caught up in that very um, harsh language when we read this and overlook the fact that this is actually being written by a very compassionate and patient and loving God as addressing us, telling us to trust in Him. That's the, the, the takeaway from Isaiah 50. And I'm not going to do an exposition on Isaiah 50, but what I will say is that it starts out saying that you were sold into captivity into slavery because of your sin. This is the choice that we have all individually made and corporately made as, as uh, humanity. And the result of it is being uh, the equivalent of being separated by a certificate of divorce or being sold because of your debt into slavery. And that God says, why didn't you call on me? Don't you know I can dry up the rivers if I want? just at a command, at my rebuke. And then he has a, uh, an encouragement to the disciple. And that this was a question that came up last week. You know, what, what is, how does what we're studying have to do with discipleship? Because I keep mentioning that from time to time. And what you see here is a very focused encouragement to the disciple, which is us. Um, and that God opens our ears he awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. This is appropriate response 
to when God opens your ear with revelation. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. In other words, I was willing to stand there and allow God to do what he chose to do. And, uh, and then it goes on. And, and the reason I, I chose this psalm, you'll see here, or this, uh, this passage, you'll see here in a little bit. It says, he who vindicates me is near, who will contend with me. Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Now, as we've been looking at Saul and David, um, you certainly could hear David utter these words. And you have actually heard him utter these same kinds of words. You know, what's your case against me? I haven't done anything wrong. Um, why is this injustice visiting me? Why am I happen to wander in the wilderness? What's this all about? If you got a case, make it. And then he says, Behold, the Lord helps me. He, uh, who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. So this is a statement of trust in who God is. <coughs> and then he says, Who is among you that fears the Lord? Hopefully all of us. That obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light. Now we always like to think of, uh, because we, we get the picture of the Lord's leading as one of illumination and light, there are times when we walk in darkness and we have no light. And I'm sitting here thinking, what's it like when you get to those dark moments? I don't have to think very far because i got a lot of those in my own life where you just can't see. You don't know where you're going. What do you do? Um, and what he says here, he says, let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Then he gives a caution to those that would take action into their own hands. He says, behold, all of you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with firebrands. In other words, got no light? I'll make it. Right? It would be like uh, Bear Gillis and uh, pull out your little you know, pocket fire starter and you know, build a fire in the wilderness. Walk in the light of your fire, he says, and among the brands you have set ablaze, and this you will have from my hand. You will lie down in torment. So two ways are presented here for the disciple. They're contrasted. One way is a way that in the darkness you trust God. The other way is you make your own light, you make your own way, and you reap the consequences of that. That's the short of Isaiah chapter 50. And hopefully it'll become clear why I chose that passage as a place to start. We're going to take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 27 this morning. And this is a passage that is chock full of all sorts of questions about how we uh, can live in a morally compromised world. So I'm going to give you that little teaser. How do we live in a morally compromised world? And what you see is that's pretty much the world we live in today. And we're going to take a look at David and a snapshot of his life. But I thought we would start first with asking the question, because I framed this part of 1 Samuel as David's uh, training ground. He's been going to character school, right? So he's been uh, getting his character formed and molded and uh, challenged through trials, right? <coughs> Ended up in the wilderness, wandering and doing other things running away from Saul. What did he learn? What did David learn in that period of time? What did he learn about God? 
And what did he learn about himself? <coughs> what did David learn about God? He's trustworthy. Trustworthy. What else did David learn about God? Always available. <coughs> available. He's always there. <coughs> Nowhere you can go that you can escape God's goodness, mercy, and uh, sometimes chastisement. What else do you learn about God? Sovereignty. Sovereignty. Tell me about that. Why he was so upset when he cut off the road. Pardon? He only cut off the corner of the road. This is God's. Right. So, David, you're referring to uh, a couple chapters back. David uh, has Saul present his back to him in a cave. And uh, he has an opportunity to take him out. And he sneaks up on him, and he cuts off the corner of his robe. He doesn't kill him, but he cuts off the corner of his robe as an act of rebellion, taking the kingdom away from Saul, creating his own fire. And in that, he was convicted. The Spirit of God convicted him. He felt guilty because what he was doing was he was rebelling against God's chosen one, God's anointed and he uh, submitted to the sovereignty of God, to the kingship of God, and God's choice and authority over both David and Saul. So this is a very, very key lesson that David has learned repeatedly, is that God is king. What else did he learn? He was his protector. He's protector. Absolutely. Where did we see that? Well, like God intervened and made everybody go into a deep sleep as David was tiptoeing through the camp. Exactly. Just last week, where uh, David and uh, he says, Who will go with me on this insane, crazy mission? We're going to go in and save our people uh, by walking right into the middle of the camp, not killing the king. Um, and so David. And uh, Abiathar. <coughs> okay, get my get my language right here. So David goes in with uh, to me. Kick it out. Abishai. Abishai. Um. Anyway, he goes in with one of his mighty men, and. Uh, he, uh, they have an argument in camp about uh, his, uh, his partner in crime says, hey, there's a spirit, let's give me the chance. I don't want you to do it because I know you learned you're not supposed to get blood on your hands, right? So I will take the spear and I will drive it through and I will not miss. Saul will be dead. I am good at what I do. And David says, no, can't do that. However, we will take the spear, we'll take the water jug, and then we'll get a safe distance, and we'll, we'll challenge him. Right? So, um, he learned that God would protect him as he was uh, executing God's mission. Does that mean that God would protect him in all things? <coughs> no. If you get outside of God's uh, will, um, there is no protection there. 
kind of like we read in Isaiah chapter 50. If uh, uh, we were sold into captivity, into slavery because of our sin, it was our choice that took us outside of the protection of God. And that there's a consequence for that. He can't protect us when we're outside of his will. He can come after us, but he can't protect us. What else do you learn? Well, this is maybe bigger picture, or maybe it goes on to both. I don't know. But I think that God is interested in discipling and or training each of us. And I think that David is in school. <laughs> you know, yeah. and he's, he's becoming this man after God's own heart. I think he had the, the will to be that, even as a boy, but he's going through this series of hard lessons, and it's going to make him, I think, a better king, although he makes some mistakes as a king, too. Yeah. But he still, over it all, you know, he's still a man after God's own heart. He's still with him today. Israel today still points to, they're the, they're the children of David. You know, I mean, they, they all point back to this. So even though he had these mistakes, uh, some of them glaring, um, he was all about being a man after God's own heart. Right. And that's, that's what I kind of uncovered a little bit more last week. If you were to look at uh, a single verse that informs you about what the um, theme of Samuel is, it's found when it describes David when he is selected as, uh, as king. And you find that where he's anointed, Samuel goes uh, to Bethlehem to uh, meet with uh, Jesse and look over his sons and select who is going to be the future king, right? So you find that in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. And the story is, is that uh, Samuel's going down through the order of the kids, and he, uh, he keeps thinking, well, this one looks good. Just like the people looked at Saul and said, well, he looks good, right? And God says, nope, it's not him. Nope, it's not him. Finally gets to the end of the, the list, and, and Lee Samuel thinks it's the end of the list. And he says, is that it? Is that all you got? God didn't choose any of them. Why did he send me here? And he says, well, I got the youngest. He's out in the field with me. Um, you know, we can call him in. So he calls him in, and immediately Samuel knows that this is the man. And the, the revelation that's given in 1 Samuel 16 Verse 7, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And we know that David was chosen as king because uh, he had a heart that was after God. And what that meant was not that he was perfect, or, or that even that he should be a model for our behavior. Because one of the things we see is we read about David's behavior, and we're going to read about some of it today, and you're going to say, really? God condones that? Not everything in here does God condone. But it's an accurate record of what people did. And uh, sometimes we look at what they did, and we have to ask the question, what did they learn? What would God have us take away from this? Not necessarily to emulate their behavior. So, God cares about our heart. 
and that he's willing to go to great lengths to train us and to teach us and to, to uh, rescue our heart from destruction and bring it closer to his. Yes. Can I maybe amend that just slightly? <laughs> yep. I think if the Lord's going to use you mightily, he does all this. Um, and, and so you have to accept that training or whatever. So if, uh, going back to your mm-hmm. Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 50, yep. you know, if he isn't going to use you, he might set you aside. <laughs> ah. But if he's going to use you, you go through this process. I, I it's so, not easy. By definition, there has to be hard stuff. Yep. So I'm a, I'm a American, and part of the American is uh, that we believe in egalitarianism. And uh, you see it everywhere. You see it in our legal system, which is more concerned with distributive justice than the other forms of justice, where it's all about getting your fair share. Right? And you just hit one of those things that immediately triggered my American, I'm not getting my fair share. You mean he was selected over me. David was chosen by God to set aside. Did anybody else hear that? I see a couple of heads nodding. Well, how do I answer that? I, and I think your point is well given, and I'll, I'll come back to the main thrust of it here in a second. But I wanted to highlight this one thing. How do we answer that? That God chooses some and doesn't choose others. Sovereignty. <laughs> Indeed. But I would also like to help point out that actually God uses all. That um, David, sure enough, was the king. But there was a whole lot of people serving with David that had greater and lesser roles. Some of them were even women that had the greatest role in Revelation. Right? And, uh, in fact, David was humble enough in the, in the school of God's character to be chastened by a woman that said, you know, don't you know who you are? Don't you know who God is? Don't you know what's going on? Wake up. This isn't appropriate for the king. Was she set aside? I don't think so. <clears throat> Even though she had a very, uh, in our understanding of the word, world social structure, had a very low place. And what you'll see is you'll see a reversal of fortunes in God's economy a lot. Where the least are the ones that come forward as the greatest. It is the servant who had no place to live, his family rejected him, his people rejected him, and all he did was stand and speak the truth. What happens to a righteous man that comes into this world and speaks the truth? They nail him to a pole and put him at the edge of camp for all to see in humiliation. You know who said that? Plato. Before Christ. That's what they do to a truly righteous and just man. And yet, the least becomes the greatest. And that's and Jesus told us that. He said sometimes the last are first and the first are last. So we need to understand that God has a plan. 
And that goes along with sovereignty. And it goes along with caring about who we are. And that whole crafting us, putting us into school. Because it's not without purpose. God does not do anything um, without a purpose. And that everything that we understand about God is that uh, in his sovereignty, he is expressing uh, perfection in creation and perfection in himself. Some of that choice of God's, <clears throat> we're supposed to have freedom of choice. And some people choose to be closer or desire to be closer to God than others. It's within them. And, I'm, you know, God sees that. And I've, I'm sure his choices are made to some degree on that basis. But by the same token, I know that other people that maybe aren't quite that diligent, but have promised he continues to draw, but he won't use them until, unless or until they are at a certain point. I think it's true that uh, God is not going to entrust um, the keys of uh, an important area of, you know, of his creation to someone who's not ready to take that. He, he's, but he's not going to give up on that person just because they're not ready. No, he's trying to work on all of us. Some people are just a lot more resistant than others. So, one of the things we see is extremely persistent. It's part of the nature of that loving kindness, that said that we talked about uh, a few weeks back, that um, God is not, he's willing to go to the very end of creation, into death itself, to rescue us. That he's incredibly persistent. He's incredibly purposeful. He's uh, very interested in our well-being. He provides for us. He protects us. He even serves us, right? So he's the perfect king. What did David learn about himself? He learned submission. He learned submission. Now let's let's talk about that free choice here for a second that you brought up. The, the whole issue that uh, we do have uh, freedom of choice, we have free will. Does that mean that we have freedom to do whatever we please? Yes? Yeah, you do actually. You, you can yeah. do right or wrong, and if you if you persist in being wrong, he's going to dump you. And if you go <laughs> <laughs> the right direction, why? You know, it's, it's all done. I don't think dump is quite the right word. <laughs> well, no, I mean that's the way a lot of people feel about it. It's like, well, you know, God gives you a choice, and if you choose Him, great. If not, hey, too bad, so sad. You're off to the flames. Well, if you're if you're working at it and you stumble, that's one thing. But if you're just totally looking the other direction, uh, you know, he, he's, he, he'll let you go. So, um, we have unlimited free choice, is, is the statement that you're making. No. More or less. Pardon? No. no. Good, I'm glad to be objective. <laughs> God is sovereign. God is sovereign. You can do a lot of what you want to do. Yeah. But if God's plan, you could 
used for good or for, you know, he uses different vessels, common vessels and, and uh, nice vases, whatever. Uh, but you can think you're doing what you want to do and, and often do. But overall, God is sovereign and we have to know that the entire universe is knit right. by him and his sovereignty stands to the highest and lowest. Right. And that's actually captured in Isaiah 50, exactly what you just said, that we do have choice. We can go out and we can light our own fires. We can do it our way, right? Where do we get the wood? Right? Where do we get the playground that we're going to play in? Um, God is sovereign over all of creation, from the highest to the lowest. He has uh, a preceptive will. If you recall when we were talking about will, when we were looking at some of the basics of theology, uh, preceptive will is God's uh, heart for what he desires in humanity and creation. So he gives us precepts. He says, this is the way you should live. A, and we read it as a command. Whereas rather more descriptive of who he is. Join me, he says. Be like me. Um, but he also has a permissive will. And that within that uh, precept of how things work in his economy and who he is and the invitation to join him, he allows us to choose to make our own fire. But you have a limited number of choices. You don't have unlimited choices. So if you're set with a tray of cookies in front of you, chocolate chip, mac nut, white chocolate, oatmeal raisin, um, Peanut butter. <laughs> choose your favorite cookie. That's what he says. Choose your favorite cookie. But guess who made the cookies? Right? Guess where all that stuff comes from? So, um, we have freedom. We have freedom to choose. But the desire of God is that we would use the freedom that he has given us to place that which is of value to us underneath his authority, that we would submit to his sovereignty. And that what we see in the picture of the perfect response of humanity is submission. And that was modeled in Jesus. What else did David learn about himself? Sometimes they have to learn things over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> So, how do we say that? Yeah. How do we say that? <laughs> I call it falling forward. Falling forward. Falling forward means you fall. And you have two choices. You can look at the ground and you can say, oh, what a stupid idiot I am. Or you can get up and take another step. Hopefully, when you get up, you look at why you fell. So you remember and you look forward to what the mission is that God has called you. So everybody's got a mission. Everybody's joining God in this plan, one way or another. So I'm going to speed this up a little bit. Um, I'm going to say that David also learned the mission of God. That he learned that about himself, that he had a role <coughs> 
And I think that that was called to his attention by Abigail. And it's been highlighted through, and you've seen it And when he's made these speeches to Saul. He keeps going back to, you know, God is sovereign, has a plan. I have a piece of that, and it's not my time yet. terrible word, patience. He learned that God has a time. And it's not necessarily our time. Now there's a, probably a whole lot of other things that David has learned at this point. And, and if I looked at my notes I'd probably see several that we didn't hit. Does anybody have a burning desire to throw one more up before we jump into the There's, there's one more. Pardon? One more is in my mind is David learned to be a leader politically. He went from a, a shepherd boy to leading you know, hundreds and hundreds of men making very correct responses, avoiding Saul, which, so, which, is, the, which is the precursor he needed to be king. God he, was teaching him. He, uh, he learned some, some uh, issues of leadership, right? And so I put down political prowess. But uh, one thing that I will say about politics is that it's, it's a learned skill and it can be used and it can be abused. And so David actually learned about the use and abuse of power. And that with authority comes power. And God had given David authority and set him up as a leader. And David learned the direction the correct use of power and influence. Right? He also learned to get people around him, Miliak and this other gentleman that went with him down for godly men that sought God's guidance with Jonathan. Right. And almost always um, that's driven by uh, a vision of the mission of God. So David, the reason people followed him is because he was going in an interesting place. He was going towards God's heart. He was joining God in mission for protection of his people, for provision for his people, to serve his people. And he said, pick me, I'll go. And craft me and form me and shape me in whatever way that you see fit, including sending me out to the wilderness to wander in darkness. Um, and he did that because he, if you read through, what you see is David continually saw the vision that God put before him of what was going to happen, of becoming redemption of the Lord, and saw that he had a role in that. And he was so excited by that and telling people about that vision. He said, hey, this is where I'm going. The people said, I'll go there. That's what a leader does. They lead. They take the step. And people follow. And one good thing about a good leader is that they're good followers. <coughs> David learned to follow God. That's why this association to sovereignty is so important. Because David learned submission. He learned how to follow did I capture that, Doug? Yes, sir. Okay. Somebody back here, too, had a point. I don't know who it was. I think they said the same thing. They said the same thing. Okay. So, and so we're looking at David as a leader, not as a lesson in leadership, because we could certainly make that case, but I think there are probably more um, uh, direct studies that we could do on leadership. Certainly, we want to glean what we can about David's, what he's learning about leadership, but this is not primarily about leadership. This is actually primarily about followership, about discipleship. And so let's take a look at how David now, um, as we understand he's been uh, 
I'm going to go ahead and bring up the map real quick. Right now, it's primarily taking place there in the central part of uh, the hill country and uh, the coastal plain. And David has been down here in the south. <coughs> Remember, he was over here in Engedi, hiding out in the caves. He was down here at the strongholds of Masada. Um, he was wandering down here in this area of the, the south called uh, the Negev, the wilderness of Zin, the wilderness of Paran. Uh, which is even further south. And so David had spent a lot of time in trial in the desert. And we read about last week where finally um, he comes against Saul and he says, you know, I'm not here to, to kill you. I'm not here to usurp God's authority or take kingdom by force. I trust that God has got everything in control, but could you please leave me alone? That's what he says to Saul, right? And Saul said what? What In response to David's, please leave me alone, what does Saul say? I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm doing wrong. That's right. What Saul always says. Right? You got the best of me this time, David, but you just wait. No, he didn't say it that way. He said, you're absolutely right. You're God's chosen one, and I'm going to see that played out, and I was wrong to chase you. And he went back to the Benjamin Plateau up here to, to Gibeah to hang out and eat more pomegranates until the next day came, and then he went after David again. Right? So David knows that there's no change in Saul's heart. Regardless of what he says, he's looking at what he does. And he gets to this statement in chapter 27. Then David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. A couple of very profound things that are said there. So David is, is out in this area, and he's saying, I'm going to come over here into the stronghold of the Philistines. And these are the five cities of the Philistines, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gath. And they occupy the most fertile part of, uh, of the coastal plain. And... Uh, and they, they were a very formidable force and had been the foes of Israel who were these little people scattered throughout the hill country and, and uh, other areas, uh, but they were never able to successfully get rid of the Philistines or some of the other ites that were in the area, right? So we read about the, the Jebusites and other ites, and we'll read about some of these ites here in a little bit, and I'll point out where they are. And so Israel had not succeeded in their mission. Their mission was to go in and occupy the land. 
And they didn't succeed in that because they chickened out. They chickened out that Dan, the tribe of Dan, was supposed to come down into this coastal plain. That's what was promised to them. If you read the division of land in Joshua, that's where they're supposed to be. Guess where they went? They came down into that coastal plain and they said, we're not going against these guys. These guys have iron tools and spears and swords. They went all the way up here, go even further north. So Dan said, I'm going to come all the way up here to this area right here. This area right here is the headwater of the Jordan River. And you've heard me talk about it, where the water comes gushing out of the rock. Um, and they made, uh, ultimately, when they separated from the other tribe, uh, the southern tribes of Israel, they made a, an altar there. Because they had moved where God had told them to go to someplace else. And you can see that's about as far as you can get away from God's will in that day for the tribe of Dan. And uh, Saul is a Benjamite, and so he's from that plateau right in here, and this is, happens to be the main battleground with the Philistines pushing out. They would push north, they would push east, they would come through the Benjamin Plateau. So these guys were a big problem. So David says, I'm going to go right into the middle of the hornet's nest. Saul will not chase me there. And he's right. Saul would be an idiot to chase David there. And that's what he says. He says, I will escape the hand of Saul. So David arose and crossed over, and he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, son of uh, Maok, king of Gath. So David takes his men, and they tromp around south here, and they come up along this, this foothill area called the Shvelah, and he comes back to Gath. Now, who was from Gath? Goliath. Goliath was from Gath. And we had a whole issue before where David went to the king of Gath. And he was toting Goliath's sword because it was at the beginning of his journey. And David uh, was running from Saul and he came down here to the king of Gath and he had Goliath's sword. And guess what? That's the last you hear of Goliath's sword. And I suggested, uh, because I can only suggest, uh, there is no extra biblical evidence or biblical evidence of what happened to Goliath's sword. Nobody knows. But what we do know is that he had it with him when he went into Gath the first time, and you never hear about it again. But David forms an alliance. David forms an alliance with this guy that's the king. Wondering, how did he form this alliance? Perhaps Goliath's sword had something to do with it. So David, when he's going to come back into this territory, he goes to the one place that he has an alliance. Even though it's the most dangerous place he could possibly go. He goes to the king of Gath. And uh, he presents himself before the king of Gath. So David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each with his household. And even David with his two wives, uh, Ahinoam and the Jezreelites, and Abigail the Carmelites, Nabal's widow. Now it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he no longer searched for him. So David's plan worked. What do you see David doing of all the things that he learned? Silence. He's not trusting in God. Pardon? Right. This is interesting. Chapter 27 makes no references to God in any form. Or even allusions. So David is truly in the darkness. He has 
no place. He has no priests that are telling him what to do. He has no prophets that are telling him what to do. He is not uh, consulting the Urim and the Thummim, uh, getting divination directly from God. Um, he's operating the way that God made him to operate on that alone. So he's using the best of his intellect and he's using the best of his faith. I don't know, because he's, he's saying, you know, if I stay here, Saul's going to kill me. Right, that's the intellect part. And that's not going to happen. That's not God's plan. That's the faith part. Right? So his intellect says, stand in the environment here. What can I do to get out of Saul's way? What can I do? I know. I'll go the one place he would never come. Just so happens, that's the one place he's at the greatest risk. So if he's trying to avoid risk, he's walking right into the, right into the lion's den, so to speak. Right? But his faith says, you know, I can go in and I can take the spear that's right next to Saul's head. Because I understand who God is and his sovereignty and his plan. So I'm as safe as I could ever be. And in fact, he learned that from Abigail. Right? What does Abigail tell David? She says to him in uh, chapter 25, I'm going to take you back just a, uh, a few verses. Um, chapter 25, verse 28, Abigail is making her appeal before David. First she feeds him, gives him the fig newtons, her dessert, and then she says what she came to say. She said, Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord an enduring house. So the first thing she does is she reminds him of who God is and what his plan is and what his purpose is. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. She's saying, you got a part in this mission. Remember that? Remember that you were called to be king? That God has chosen you for just such a time as this. And evil will not be found in you all your days. That's an encouraging statement. Because he could choose to ignore all of that. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. <clears throat> in other words, your life is tied to the life of God himself. I'll tell you what, there is no more sure place than you can be than to have your life tied to the life of God. Guess what Jesus did for you? You read in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, and I will read it so that I don't misquote. Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, it says, When Christ who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Let me unpack that for you just a little bit. This is what they call, uh, uh, it's, it's like an equal sign. I won't give you the grammatical term. It says when Christ, and, and this is in the NASB, and there's a comma there, and then there's this phrase, who is our life, comma. There's like an equal sign there. This is an assignment of what's on the right to what's on the left. So Christ is our life. We have the very life of Jesus. 
when he was resurrected from the dead, he conquered death. That eternal life that he has is the very life that we have. I know that because it tells me that in John chapter 5, verse 26. Christ has been given the authority by God to give the very life of God. God is the only one who is self-existent, that has life within himself. And he can give that to whomever he chooses. And what we've happened, what's happened to us as a result of what Jesus did is we are now bound to the bundle of God's life. And that's exactly what Abigail said. She said, you shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of the sling. So she's reminding him of what God has done and what God is doing and what God will do. Right? And David acts on that. That's his faith. He knows that God has a plan and a purpose and that he is protected because he is bound. His life is bound to the life of God. Right? So we'll jump back to chapter 27, 1 Samuel. So David, I think here, is learned. Um, he's learned who God is, who he is, what he's about doing, he's learned patience, he's learned that God is always going to be there to show up and deliver, and that as long as he's following in God's footsteps, and his heart is after his, as God's heart, that he will be accomplishing that which God has chosen for him, whether it would be king, or whether it would be to be set aside as a servant to the enemy, because that's what he's done. He's made himself a servant to the enemy. So, it says that Saul no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, If now I have found favor in your sight, let, uh, let them give me a place in one of the cities in the country, that I may live there. For why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. So, if you go to uh, Joshua chapter 15... It gives uh, the, the boundary of Judah, right? talks about Judah coming all the way up um, to the edge of uh, the Benjamin Plateau to a city that was held at that time by the Jebusites. Um, there's a ridge here, uh, and David later took that and called it the city of David. Um, and just to the north of that city is a hill where um, David, which we read about in the very end of Samuel, um, actually meets an angel of the Lord, and he purchases at great expense to himself this mountain, which becomes today the Temple Mount. And that's where they built the temple, Solomon built the temple, which was up from the city of David. But the division point between the north and the south, where, where uh, Judah starts and where Benjamin stops is right here at the door of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem itself is in Benjamin. Interesting. And it goes all the way down south to where David had been hanging out, right? But if you read in Joshua, even though Ziklag was supposed to be part and this coastal plain was supposed to be part, uh, well, the coastal plain wasn't supposed to be part, but Ziklag in this area along the Shalah here was supposed to be part of Judah. And they never took it. And guess what? David goes as a servant to the enemy, and the enemy gives it to him. 
Talk about God working. So David is given Ziklag. And it is still a city of Judah to this day. In other words, it's become part of the strength. <laughs> Ziklag is down here. It's way off. So um, let, me, let me go ahead and move this map up just a snad. So that, 13 miles difference between Gath and Ziklag. It's a pretty good stretch. So how did you come up with 13 miles? In my dictionary at home. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that gives you an idea from here, Gath, down to Ziklag. So you recall that where David killed Goliath was just right here in this valley, outside of not too far from Gath, uh, in uh, Elah Valley. And I showed you pictures of that at the time. And they chased the guys all the way down to Gath. Um, so 13 miles from Gath to Ziklag. So that's not very far. It gives you context. So the um, king of, uh, of Gath there really did have that whole area. Oh, yeah. The king of Gath actually pushed all the way up here to the Elah Valley. Because you remember, that's where the division between the Hebrew children and the Philistines were. The Philistines didn't really want to go into the hill country because there's not much up here. Uh, unless you're a, a sheep farmer or something like that, or you can grow grapes and things like that, but most of the produce grown at, down here in the Jezreel Valley. And so the Philistines, they didn't really have much interest in taking the hills, so, but they would go right up to it. And that's where the Elah Valley is. you got a river coming down here, and, uh, and the, the Hebrew children would go in there and they would farm in the valley, and the Philistines would come in and take the goods, which was a problem. So that's why this battle between the Israelites and the Philistines happened where Goliath was a champion. So David um, comes to Gath, makes himself a servant to the, to the king, uh, the enemy, and the king gives him that which was promised from the very beginning that the Israelites never took, which is the irony of God, right? That David would get this area uh, of Ziklag, which was supposed to be part of Judah. And it says, the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. So he was here quite a while as a servant and started establishing himself in the community because he had no idea what God's timing was, right? But he knew God had a time. We're going to find out later in just a few chapters that David spent probably 12 to 14 years either wandering around out here trying to hide from Saul or over here in uh, Ziklag or in the territory of the Philistines. 14 years, he spent all of his 20s on the run. All of his 20s. And the latter part of his teens. Right? So a significant part of David's formation of his life, at that point, almost half of his life, had been spent in God's character school before he ever became king. So he's down here at uh, Ziklag, and it says, Now David and his men went up and raided the Jeshurites, the Gerizites, and the Amalekites. Three of the ites. Um, the, and, and you can just think here from left to right. Okay? Uh, Geshurites are over in this area to the south. The Gerizites are kind of in the central part to the south. And the Amalekites uh, are originally out of Edom, and they're in this area down here. And so these were the enemies of Israel. That's not a part of Judah. They were the enemies of Israel. 
for they were inhabitants of the lands from ancient times, as you come to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. David attacked the land and did not leave a man or a woman alive. And he took away the sheep, the cattle, the donkeys, the camels, and the clothing, and he returned and came to Achish. So he's bringing spoils to Achish, because that's what a servant does. You bring uh, your payment, your tribute to your master. Now Achish said, where have you made a raid today? And David said, against the Negev of Judah, and against the Negev, Negev of the uh, Jeremielites, and against the Negev of the Kenites. And so what David's doing is he's saying, I didn't go that far south and... and, and uh, Trump on all this area down here, which I'll bring up here. Um, so David's saying um, he's not telling him the truth. David was out here marauding, and he says, well, I was here in southern Judah. And the idea is, is that he's bringing the spoil. The king won't know because he's killed everybody. So there's nobody to tell that David's not telling the truth. And he's bringing tribute to um, the king. And so, some people would call this political shrewdness. Some people would call this deception. Um, we'll talk about that, but not, but not today. But not today. Um, but I do want to finish the story here. So, uh, David didn't leave anybody alive. He told Akish a lie. Uh, David did not leave a man or a woman alive to bring to gassing. Otherwise, they will tell us, saying, so, so has David done, and so has his practice been all the time he has lived in the country of the Philistines. So Akish believed David, saying, He has surely made himself odious among his people Israel. Therefore, he will become my servant forever. So I started unwrapping for you, and we'll pick up next week, um, some of the ethical problems that we encounter in the Bible. This is an area where David, man of God, and I'm telling you, he's at almost the graduation point from character college, God's character school. He's coming up to graduation day. And right before graduation day, he tells the king of Gath a lie and says, yeah, what I've been doing is actually securing the border for my people. I've been doing God's mission. No, he doesn't tell him that. He says, I've been doing this for you. I'm bringing you cookies. Right? And, uh, and there's no one to refute that. Right? That's what David's doing. And we need to look at the ethical issues associated with that. These people down south, where he really was from Wadding, are they allies of the Philistine cities? Well, they're the kind of ally that is your enemy is my enemy. In other words, they had no problem jumping on the back of... Uh, the Hebrew children, but they wouldn't have gone against the Philistines because the Philistines were more powerful. So they're, the, especially the Amalekites, they were, uh, they were like, uh, oh, what's the word? Um, I mean, they would just make these raids like at night and they pick off the weak and the, I mean, they were just ruthless. Uh, uh, I can't think of the right word right now, but I mean, they, they were uh, a terrible way of doing war. Because, you know, in that day, it wasn't appropriate to sneak up on somebody and kill them from behind. You, know, you at least, you know, shout at them, and they turn around, and then you spear them. So, there was some honor. There was no honor among the Malachites. These guys were just terrible, and it, we read about them in Exodus. So, 
Um, we want to uh, come back to chapter 27 just to address these issues. But what you see is David making very uh, practical decisions in the absence of God's direction about how he can continue the mission of God in a morally compromised world, living among the enemy. It's a long statement, and we need to unpack that further, because if you accept that without saying, well, didn't what he do was wrong? If you don't ask that question, then I'm not doing my job. So um, so I just asked it for you. Um, let's go ahead and, and close here in prayer since we're out of time. Lord, we thank you for what we're learning um, about your character school because we know that you're doing that to us as well as just as David was chosen as king of your people in that time uh, Lord you've chosen us uh, to serve you in the, the area that you've placed us uh, today whether uh, that just be within our family and we think well gee that doesn't have much impact uh, we know that it does as we look at histories throughout time and how the relationships of husbands and wives and mothers and fathers um, have affected the course of history. And so we know that, that even what we would think of as mundane and daily tasks are part of your plan. And Lord, we know that you formed us and are forming us uh, to have a heart after you. And Lord, we just would ask that you would open to us your word uh, completely, that your Holy Spirit would reveal to us the truth that's contained there, that uh, we wouldn't necessarily uh, find a, a model that we can uh, think is static, but rather see the dynamics of your hand in, as you're working through history uh, to redeem us and to help us be a part of your redemptive plan. Lord, we ask that you would protect us as we go from here. We ask that you would uh, provide for us as we know that there are many, many challenges in the world today. And Lord, you would, we ask that you would help us be servants uh, as you have served us, that we would serve others. And Lord, we ask that you be with Bob this morning as he uh, preaches out of Ecclesiastes. Um, Lord, we just ask for the many transitions that are happening in people's lives, that you would be there present and reveal yourself clearly to them so that we don't have to be tempted to make our own fires. Lord, we thank you for this. In, in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.